we continue with the dissenting opinion in Students for Fair Admissions v. Harvard College, beginning with Part 1, Section C of the Opinion. Section C. Two decades after Brown, in Bakke, a plurality of the court held that the attainment of a diverse student body is a compelling and constitutionally permissible goal for an institution of higher education. Race could be considered in the college admissions process in pursuit of this goal, the plurality explained, if it is one factor of many in an applicant's file, and each applicant receives individualized review as part of a holistic admissions process. Since Bakke, the court has reaffirmed numerous times the constitutionality of limited race-conscious college admissions. First, in Grutter v. Bollinger, 2003, a majority of the court endorsed the Bakke plurality's view that student body diversity is a compelling state interest that can justify the use of race in university admissions, and held that race may be used in a narrowly tailored manner to achieve this interest. Later, in the Fisher litigation, the court twice reaffirmed that a limited use of race in college admissions is constitutionally permissible if it satisfies strict scrutiny. In Fisher v. University of Texas at Austin, 2013, or Fisher 1, Seven members of the court concluded that the use of race in college admissions comports with the 14th Amendment if it is narrowly tailored to obtain the educational benefits of diversity. Several years later, in Fisher v. University of Texas at Austin, 2016, or Fisher II, the court upheld the admissions program at the University of Texas under this framework. Bakke, Gruder, and Fisher are an extension of Brown's legacy. Those decisions recognize that experience lends support to the view that the contribution of diversity is substantial. Racially integrated schools improve cross-racial understanding, break down racial stereotypes, and ensure that students obtain the skills needed in today's increasingly global marketplace through exposure to widely diverse people, cultures, ideas, and viewpoints. More broadly, inclusive institutions that are visibly open to talented and qualified individuals of every race and ethnicity instill public confidence in the legitimacy and integrity of those institutions and the diverse set of graduates that they cultivate. That is particularly true in the context of higher education, where colleges and universities play a critical role in maintaining the fabric of society and serve as the training ground for a large number of our nation's leaders. It is thus an objective of the highest order, a compelling interest indeed, that universities pursue the benefits of racial diversity and ensure that the diffusion of knowledge and opportunity is available to students of all races. This compelling interest in student body diversity is grounded not only in the court's equal protection jurisprudence, but also in principles of academic freedom, which long have been viewed as a special concern of the First Amendment. In light of the important purpose of public education 
and the expansive freedoms of speech and thought associated with the university environment, this court's precedents recognize the imperative nature of diverse student bodies on American college campuses. Consistent with the First Amendment, student body diversity allows universities to promote the robust exchange of ideas which discovers truth out of a magnitude of tongues, rather than through any kind of authoritative selection. Indeed, as the court recently reaffirmed in another school case, learning how to tolerate diverse, expressive activities has always been part of learning how to live in a pluralistic society under our constitutional tradition. In short, for more than four decades, it has been this court's settled law that the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment authorizes a limited use of race in college admissions in service of the educational benefits that flow from a diverse student body. From Brown to Fisher, this court's cases have sought to equalize educational opportunity in a society structured by racial segregation and to advance the 14th Amendment's vision of an America where racially integrated schools guarantee students of all races the equal protection of the laws. Section D. Today, the court concludes that indifference to race is the only constitutionally permissible means to achieve racial equality in college admissions. That interpretation of the 14th Amendment is not only contrary to precedent and the entire teachings of our history, but it is also grounded in the illusion that racial inequality was a problem of a different generation. Entrenched racial inequality remains a reality today. That is true for society writ large, and more specifically, for Harvard and the University of North Carolina, two institutions with a long history of racial exclusion. Ignoring race will not equalize a society that is racially unequal. What was true in the 1860s and again in 1954 is true today. Equality requires acknowledgement of inequality. 1. After more than a century of government policies enforcing racial segregation by law, society remains highly segregated. About half of all Latinos and Black students attend a racially homogeneous school with at least 75% minority student enrollment. The share of intensely segregated minority schools, i.e. schools that enroll 90-100% to racial minorities, has sharply increased. To this day, the U.S. Department of Justice continues to enter into desegregation decrees with schools that have failed to eliminate the vestiges of de jure segregation. Moreover, underrepresented minority students are more likely to live in poverty and attend schools with a high concentration of poverty. When combined with residential segregation and school funding systems that rely heavily on local property taxes, this leads to racial minority students attending schools with fewer resources. In turn, underrepresented minorities are more likely to attend schools with less qualified teachers, less challenging curricula, lower standardized test scores, and fewer extracurricular activities and advanced placement courses. It is thus unsurprising 
that there are achievement gaps along racial lines, even after controlling for income differences. Systemic inequities disadvantaging underrepresented racial minorities exist beyond school resources. Students of color, particularly black students, are disproportionately disciplined or suspended, interrupting their academic progress and increasing their risk of involvement with the criminal justice system. Underrepresented minorities are less likely to have parents with a post-secondary education who may be familiar with the college application process. Further, low-income children of color are less likely to attend preschool and other early childhood education programs that increase educational attainment. All of these interlocked factors place underrepresented minorities multiple steps behind the starting line in the race for college admissions. In North Carolina, the home of UNC, racial inequality is deeply entrenched in K-12 education. State courts have consistently found that the state does not provide underrepresented racial minorities equal access to educational opportunities, and that racial disparities in public schooling have increased in recent years in violation of the state constitution. These opportunity gaps result in fewer students from underrepresented backgrounds even applying to college, particularly elite universities. Because talent lives everywhere, but opportunity does not, there are undoubtedly talented students with great academic potential who have simply not had the opportunity to attain the traditional indicia of merit that provide a competitive edge in the admissions process. Consistent with this reality, Latino and Black students are less likely to enroll in institutions of higher education than their white peers. Given the central role that education plays in breaking the cycle of racial inequality, these structural barriers reinforce other forms of inequality in communities of color. Stark racial disparities exist, for example, in unemployment rates, income levels, wealth and home ownership, and health care access. Put simply, society remains inherently unequal. Racial inequality runs deep to this very day. That is particularly true in education, the most vital civic institution for the preservation of a democratic system of government. As I have explained before, only with eyes open to this reality can the court carry out the guarantee of equal protection. 2. Both UNC and Harvard have sordid legacies of racial exclusion. Because context matters when reviewing race-conscious college admissions programs, this reality informs the exigency of respondents' current admissions policies and their racial diversity goals. For much of its history, UNC was a bastion of white supremacy. Its leadership included slaveholders, the leaders of the Ku Klux Klan, the central figures in white supremacy campaigns of 1898 and 1900, and many of the state's most ardent defenders of Jim Crow and race-based social Darwinism in the 20th century. The university excluded all people of color from its faculty and student body, glorified the institution of slavery, 
enforced its own Jim Crow regulations and punished any dissent from racial orthodoxy. It resisted racial integration after this court's decision in Brown and was forced to integrate by court order in 1955. It took almost 10 more years for the first black woman to enroll at the university in 1963. Even then, the university admitted only a handful of underrepresented racial minorities, and those students suffered constant harassment, humiliation, and isolation. UNC officials openly resisted racial integration well into the 1980s, years after the youngest member of this court was born. During that period, black students faced racial epithets and stereotypes, received hate mail, and encountered Ku Klux Klan rallies on campus. To this day, UNC's deep-seated legacy of racial subjugation continues to manifest itself in student life. Buildings on campus still bear the names of members of the Ku Klux Klan and other white supremacist leaders. Students of color also continue to experience racial harassment, isolation, and tokenism. Plus, the student body remains predominantly white. Approximately 72% of UNC students identify as white, while only 8% identify as black. These numbers do not reflect the diversity of the state, particularly black North Carolinians, who make up 22% of the population. UNC is not alone. Harvard, like other Ivy League universities in our country, stood beside church and state as the third pillar of a civilization built on bondage. From Harvard's founding, slavery and racial subordination were integral parts of the institution's funding, intellectual production, and campus life. Harvard and its donors had extensive financial ties to, and profited from, the slave trade, the labor of enslaved people, and slavery-related investments. As Harvard now recognizes, the accumulation of this wealth was vital to the university's growth and establishment as an elite national institution. Harvard suppressed anti-slavery views, and enslaved persons served Harvard presidents and professors and fed and cared for Harvard students on campus. Exclusion and discrimination continued to be a part of campus life well into the 20th century. Harvard's leadership and prominent professors openly promoted race science, racist eugenics, and other theories rooted in racial hierarchy. Activities to advance these theories took place on campus, including intrusive physical examinations and photographing of unclothed students. The university also prized the admission of academically able Anglo-Saxon students from elite backgrounds, including wealthy white sons of the South. By contrast, an average of three black students enrolled at Harvard College each year during the five decades between 1890 and 1940. Those black students who managed to enroll at Harvard excelled academically, earning equal or better academic records than most white students, but faced the challenges of the deeply rooted legacy of slavery and racism on campus.
Meanwhile, a few women of color attended Radcliffe College, a separate and overwhelmingly white women's annex where racial minorities were denied campus housing and scholarships. Women of color at Radcliffe were taught by Harvard professors, but women did not receive Harvard degrees until 1963. Today, benefactors with ties to slavery and white supremacy continue to be memorialized across campus through statues, buildings, professorships, student houses, and the like. Black and Latino applicants account for only 20% of domestic applicants to Harvard each year. Even those students of color who beat the odds and earn an offer of admission continue to experience isolation and alienation on campus. For years, the university has reported that inequities on campus remain. For example, Harvard has reported that far too many black students at Harvard experience feelings of isolation and marginalization, and that student survey data showed that only half of Harvard undergraduates believe that the housing system fosters exchanges between students of different backgrounds. These may be uncomfortable truths to some, but they are truths nonetheless. Institutions can and do change, however, as societal and legal changes force them to live up to their highest ideals. It is against this historical backdrop that Harvard and UNC have reckoned with their past and its lingering effects. Acknowledging the reality that race has always mattered and continues to matter, these universities have established institutional goals of diversity and inclusion. Consistent with equal protection principles and this court's settled law, their policies use race in a limited way with the goal of recruiting, admitting, and enrolling underrepresented racial minorities to pursue the well-documented benefits of racial integration in education. This opinion has been divided into multiple segments, and we've just come to the end of the second. But don't worry, next episode we will pick up exactly where this episode left off. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.